Hello, I'm Peter Ayers. Welcome to the podcast that converses with creatives about their craft, career and what matters to them. In this episode, we traverse the stages of arts administrator and sometimes podcaster, Amy Maiden. Amy Maiden seems to have done it all. Entering the entertainment industry as an actor, she has also embraced the roles of producer, podcaster, publicist, general manager, advocate, cruise director and front singer of The Mables. As a passionate proponent of the arts from the age dot, it would seem that Maiden was always going to be a woman of the theatre. Her challenge would be which hat fits best. Upon graduation from the Ballarat Academy of Performing Arts, she worked extensively for the Disney organisation. Add Mouseketeer to the list. Time in London followed and new opportunities in the marketing of musicals. Impressive organisational skills and an enthusiasm to accept any challenge presented saw her lead a passionate response to the 2009 Victorian bushfires, collaborating with a team of committed Aussies to present a hugely successful concert staged at the Palace Theatre in the West End. The attention and excellence garnered by the concert resulted in a visit to the Palace. Administration engagements at home have seen her in leadership roles at the Australian Theatre for Young People and the Sydney Festival, demonstrating further enterprise and accolade. A new chapter is soon to launch with a move to Melbourne and a return to global marketing agency, AKA. A theatre foyer would be incomplete without the presence of Amy Maiden. She's a champion of anyone wanting to create stories for the stage. She's traversed many exciting stages and she's ready to make many more stories. So you've got a podcast, haven't you? I do. It's on hiatus at the moment. Why is it on hiatus? Because I got really busy. Well, that's the the thing, sort of, um, it does take a lot of time, doesn't it, to sort of do that um, pre-planning and then the actual interviews and then the post-production to to get it ready for broadcast. It's a lot of work. I really enjoy making it. It was the, if I had, I need need an assistant or a producer. Don't we all? (laughs) For many reasons in my life. But someone to, it's organising the guests and wrangling the guests and the finding the times that work. I struggle with because my diary is quite hectic anyway. Um, I think I'm lucky, but I'm sure you would be the same. That it's, There's never any chore in, in finding people who are willing to... Oh, no, everyone's very happy to talk to about themselves. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Exhibit A. Case in point, here I am. <laughs> so so um, what's your podcast called? It's called Asking For It. And, and um, what's it about? How did you? Why did you decide to do it? What's I... the creative... Drive. I decided to do it. Um, it was just around the Me Too movement kicking off, and around, especially in Australia, the stories that were coming out, and a couple of women being sort of said that they were being overly provocative online, and that by posing in their underwear, then they have no right to question others' behaviour towards them. And I started sort of, I had wanted to make a podcast for a while, and I was trying to find the right angle, and then it kind of struck me at three in the morning. And I thought I'd like to reclaim and reframe the phrase asking for it to find out what people are actually asking for. Um, and so that's how it all started. So who have you interviewed? Only women? Only women. I think yeah. season two I'm going to open it out. Um, 
and invite people of all gender to join the, my conversations. Uh, who have we interviewed? Amy Campbell was a very popular episode, amazing choreographer and dancer, Amy Campbell. Right. Uh, Maureen Faruqi for the Greens oh, uh, was an amazing interview and she uh, she swore, which I got so excited by. <laughs> but I went to Parliament and interviewed her there in the New South Wales Parliament, which was amazing. Um, yeah, a whole raft of people. I tried to make sure that it wasn't just a whole bunch of white chicks talking to each other as well. Um, so there was a nice mix of people and really smart people. I interviewed um, the gorgeous woman who runs the Bankstown Poetry Slam. Just all different kinds of women. So it, that's the beauty of the the podcast, I guess. It uh, provides you with an opportunity, a platform to have uh, a long-form interview um, of, a, of an hour or so and, yeah. and have a really sort of in-depth conversation covering... Lots of facets. I, I loved it. I tried to keep them, mine were a bit shorter. I tried to keep them to kind of half an hour, 45 minutes, and they, they had a structure. I found that I think season two I'll do longer form ones because I'd like to get into the conversations and there was lots of things that I wish I'd gone back and, and asked again. So, yeah. So is that your way of um, participating in advocacy for, um, you know, with the Me Too movement and... Um yeah, I mean, I've done, issues. I've done a lot of advocacy in in that uh, in that space. In um, your role as an administrator, I guess. Yes. Yeah. Well, yeah. I sit. I've just stood down, but for a long time, I was sitting on the board of Theatre Network New South Wales. And uh, when the Me Too movement all kicked off, especially in Australia, um, media started coming to Theatre Network New South Wales. So I was put forward as the face of the media. So I did seven thirty report and those things. Um, and through that, I got um, connected with Tracy Spicer. Uh, and was involved in the founding of the Now Foundation that that she was spearheading with lots of brilliant women that was to create kind of a legal fund for for anyone who needed help with sexual assault cases. Uh, Yeah, I'm very passionate about those kind of things. So we've seen a good deal of change uh, since the Me Too movement came about. Um, Has that change been enough? Have we still got further to go? Have we seen a good deal of change? I don't know if we have. have Well, this is coming from a white bloke, isn't it? it, uh, There's been a lot of... Uh, good conversation there's been a lot of starting to have very difficult conversations I, I my mantra is that we as an industry need to get better at having difficult conversations and questioning who has what power and for how long and how that power is shared um, I think there's been a couple of damaging court cases that have have set the conversation back and I know a lot of women who are very fearful to talk about their experiences because of that for fear of defamation and the defamation laws in Australia so through my work with Theatre Network New South Wales, I did a lot of advocacy work in training people in HR, in understanding defamation law and helping people have those kind of conversations. I don't think we, we need to give any more air to that, some of those court cases, but um, certainly there, there is, uh, you know, th- those women have been, become more so victims, I suppose. And as you say, anyone could be paralysed to sort of speak out now because of fear of what might happen. Yeah. Well, look, I'm not an expert on the cases. I wasn't, you know, a part of them, but... You, you you can understand why people don't want to now. Yeah. So there is a level of awareness raising that has happened, but I think there's a lot a lot further to go. Have you yourself been put in those positions, those vulnerable positions where abuse, a power abuse may have been... Um, yeah. Or power may have been abused. Yeah, sorry. of course. Mm. Um, I have been personally on the receiving end of inherent sexism as well, which is what sits at the foundation of it all, I think. Um, but yes, of course, I've had examples of that where I've had uh, <laughs> clients or producers or things make advances and people in power tell me to take it for the team and conversations like that. I never did. But there is, yeah, when, especially when you're younger. Now it's different. But I think when I was younger and in my 20s and really on the career track and really fighting to, to get a foot on the ladder, 
you don't know what's 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 okay and what's not it's hard to know where the line is because i think our professional and our personal lives blur you go from day to night from the office to the shows things like that well i think i was with you one night when um, oh yes a particular incident <laughs> happened. I've, I've forgotten about <laughs> no, that no names yeah. no pack drill but i was horrified i was ready to punch him yeah and i remember the faces of the people around us at that party when yeah. he was doing that and he's a very powerful man. And so at the t- I was, again, that was a few years ago now. And I just remember kind of just smiling and going with it. That would be a very different experience now. <laughs> Good. Good. <laughs> Amy, where did we first meet? Ballarat. We met, I would say, 1987? 1987? Yeah. Brighton Beach Memoirs. Would be my earliest recollection. Yep. So, so the circumstances there were that you had a brother and a mother. Who I still were, do. You, yes, you have. You have, have a brother and a mother who were in a community theatre production of Neil Simon's Brighton Beach Memoirs, which I always, I also was fortunate enough to be in. And you were the little sister that used to come along and watch rehearsals. Yeah, that was pretty much that. If you wanted to sum up my childhood, that was pretty much it. So, little sister who came to watch rehearsals of community theatre. Little sister, mind you, you, you would have been about 11 or 12, would you? I'm seven. Seven? Even yeah, younger? I was wow. Little. But you were you strike me as a theatre nerd there. I was. I was thinking about it um, as I listened to your episode with Jackie Dark, actually, who was also in that play, wasn't and, she? Oh, she was indeed. Another Balleration and another Balleration. Brighton Beach Memoir cast member. Yes. Yeah. I was thinking about that as I listened to what that What an episode. illustrious cast that was. It really was. <laughs> You've all gone on to quite incredible careers. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I was a theatre nerd from birth, but it really was... I was I was brought up in a family that loved theatre. You know, my, my dad was in and directed community and school theatre. My mum was in community theatre. And it was kind of all I ever knew and I remember a very specific moment when I was in primary school talking to a boy in my class and saying to him I'm going to go and see this show whatever the local musical group was doing and saying are you going to see it too and I remember him saying oh I don't really I don't really like theatre and it being I must have been about nine and me being so struck that 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 was even a concept that people didn't like it that it wasn't a part of people's world because for me growing up that was just such a huge part of what we did and it was amazing to me that 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 wasn't the experience for someone else so I was pretty much born into it I think. Do you think you would have had that connection to the theatre if you know you didn't have parents who were involved in community theatre and, and seeing live performance and all that sort of thing do you think it's, it's something that's inherent in some people that um, there is so. just a, a pull to the stage? I mean, I think the whole community is like that down there in, in, in that town specifically. But I, I don't know. I, I think there are people who are inherently pulled to it regardless of, of where they are because, you know, I have good friends who work in the industry who have a completely different childhood to me. So I don't think it's specific to that. But I do think I was very lucky. I am very passionate. You know, I used to, I'm sure we'll talk about it, I used to run a youth theatre company. I'm very passionate about the, um, the, the positive benefits that a, a young, the spending your youth in a creative environment what it can do i think it's really important well you, you went on to become a student at a school that i was teaching at and you were in the school play a couple of times you directed me in my very first show ah which and and if going back it's annie get your gun yes and you were one of annie's little sisters jesse yes i wouldn't have, i couldn't have remembered her name but I'm glad <laughs> jesse. 
And then you were in rags too. We did rags. We did do rags together, yes. Which won the uh, Victorian School's Best Production A&A Awards. I loved that show so it, much. It's, it's, a, it's a beautiful show. I don't know why. Well, it, it, there's great problems with the book, etc. But <laughs> yes. um, I was lucky enough to do it again at Whopper. And oh, that's um, right, you too. it's a magnificent school. One of those real gems of the Broadway theatre. It's um, a beautiful show. I think it, it's been kind of overtaken by Ragtime now. That's kind that's of. That's true too, yeah, yeah. That's sort of a, an evolution from the same story. But if ever there was a time for a, a revival, I think now would be it. Certainly, yeah. with our refugee situation and it's not dissimilar. All that sort of thing would, would be would be fantastic. <laughs> um, but you know, as a, as a young girl, then sort of in high school, you, you struck me as somebody with great drive and commitment. And you were always listening and would seek any opportunity to um, to have a go, whether that be performance or working backstage or making a poster or whatever. <sighs> you just. It was in, it was pumping through your veins. Thank you. Yeah, I I think it was a, a combination of which I still have now, I guess. But I think it was a combination of I'd found my my tribe in those people. I you know I wasn't I wasn't a sporty kid, and in you know regional Australia sports are so popular. I wasn't I wasn't one of those kids, but I just found my friends with the music. The music kids and the drama kids were really my my friends, and so I just wanted to be in that space all the time where I felt comfortable, and I also felt special because I could sing, and so I I you know I could be I could be special in that space as well, and that was a big a big part of it, I think. So, what did you want to be when you grew up? Oh my god, I was I knew what I wanted to be. Right, great. I knew I was going to be Benedict Peters. <laughs> like it was just there was no question in my mind that that was a hundred percent what was going to happen, and I just I could not wait. For that to start. Why Bernadette Peters? Where did you discover her? Uh, Into the Woods. Right. The broadcast version of Into the Woods. Yep. Had it on VHS, watched it till the tape wore out. Just loved her, loved it, loved the whole thing. And, and probably, just... perhaps her, uh, Lily St. Regis in Annie? Uh, no, I no? was never an Annie fan. Right. It's not, still not. Really? <laughs> not my thing. You're, no. You're I... such a great pepper. <laughs> I was, no, I, you know, I was a real music nerd as well. I was having four music lessons a week and band and choir and all those things. So for me, it was, it was Sondheim. Bernadette Peters was my gateway drug to Sondheim. Uh, I sang Sondheim in my year 12 exam. Like it was really, I was such a nerd. <laughs> well, yes, well, t- well, tell me about that because it's quite a funny story. Talk about music and Sondheim and, and your year 12 exam because I was yeah. surprised you didn't study drama in year 12. We didn't have drama. You didn't have drama, but you were a, an avid music student. Yeah. And so what did you do for your year 12 <laughs> music theatre exam? Well, I, can we say, I topped the state, Pete. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah. Well, that's fine. Um, so <laughs> when, you, when you study your year 12 examinations, or it used to be many years ago, that there was a list of songs that you get to choose from. There's an approved list of songs. I mean, you'd know more than me about that, but there's an approved list of songs that you can sing. And on that list, I thought an appropriate choice was Ladies Who Lunch From Company. Which, at the age of 17, I thought was very relevant to my experience living in regional Victoria. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I'll drink to that. One for Marla. I really had no idea what I was singing about. (laughs) That's that's hysterical. Um, (laughs) But it's bewildering about why they would have the ladies who lunch as a song choice for a year 12 exam. I have no idea. I've only really started... I mean, it just came to my memory not long ago and I thought but it was Obviously, there are great character women like yourself who <laughs> who would seize the day and, and really make a meal of it. And you did. Sure. <laughs> Finishing top in the state. <laughs> Look out, Patty Lapine. <laughs> <laughs> so why was Ballarat a good place to grow up? 
That's a really good question. I think it was, I think at the time it, there was a beautiful creative artistic community there. And I know you've spoken before about the incredible people who have come from that part of the world, but it was a, a close knit community, I think. And we all really loved being creative and cheered each other on. And it felt like family, just an extended family. You finished high school uh, and then you went off and trained to be an actor, didn't you? I did, yes. And I trained in Ballarat. Yeah. yeah. At uh, Ballarat Academy of Performing Arts. That's what it was called then. Yeah. Yes. Is this not called that now? No, I think it's called Arts Academy now. Federation Arts University. Academy. I'm not sure. Right. It's changed its name several F-U. times. F-U. <laughs> F-U or A-A. It's now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, so I was 17 when I finished high school. And the only school that I auditioned for was Ballarat. And because I just wanted to get over and done with, because I just wanted to train and then become Bernadette Peters. Like it was just, it was so clear that that was what was going to happen for me. And my brother was at the time auditioning for Whopper and for NIDA. And I was telling myself I didn't want to go to the same school that he was going to go to, but I think it was also a huge fear of rejection, (laughs) which perhaps you might need if you're intending to be an actor. Um, But I went to the school that I also, that I knew I was, I could get into as well. And so I auditioned for that school because Whopper and Ida wouldn't, you know, very rarely take people straight out of high school, although at the time that was quite a thing. And especially at the age of 17, they very rarely would take people. So I went to a school where I knew I had a better shot of getting straight in so I could just get my training done. I just get, by that point I needed to get out of Ballarat and go and see the world. And I just, I could not wait to get it done. But the school was great. It was wildly underfunded at the time and very new. We were the second music theatre class to go through. Um, but we had some hilarious and wonderful teachers and I made some of the closest friends of my life there who are still my friends. So what did you learn there? Oh, good. I, it, the course itself, the teachers there, the lecturers had an approach of you can't just wait for the phone to ring. It was a really big lesson and if you want to build a career in this industry that you absolutely have to make it happen yourself and that you've got to work really hard we had this incredible teacher jude roberts who is just she would be a brilliant person to chat to on this podcast because her incredible career and the time that she spent she danced in the tivoli amazing amazing woman and she used to always say she said don't talk to me about it go and do it (laughs) and that was the mantra that was really kind of put into your head is don't talk to me about it go and do it and so that was that if i took anything away from those three years it was absolutely that um, let's talk about your brother, uh, Simon Maiden. You're, yeah. very, you're both very close. Yes, we are. You must be very proud of his achievements as an actor. Absolutely. He's consistently worked for t- over 20 years. That's incredible. I don't know how he... I certainly didn't keep... Um, spoiler alert, I didn't I didn't become Bernadette Peterson. I didn't keep going. <laughs> um, but he has, and he has had... You know, he's very modest about it, but he's had a really sustained career in theatre television film commercial voiceover um yeah and he's about to go off on tour in a musical it's come from away yes his first big commercial musical that's fantastic i feel like he's in my world now (laughs) (laughs) um were you ever competitive yes i was oh you were i don't know about him but i was with him well he's your big brother your big brother you have to prove yourself to him yes and also everything he did i did like i remember him if he climbed a tree, I wanted to climb a tree. It was just the two of us, you know. If he skateboarded, I attempted to, you know. He played the piano, so I played the piano. He learned the flute, so I learned the flute. But did you want to beat him? Did you want to climb the tree higher? Did you want to play that Bach concerto? Did you want to uh, be better? I, mean, I think it was that I could do it too. It wasn't I wanted to be better. That, that might have come later. But it was definitely that if I can do it too. 
I can do anything that you, you know, I can do anything that you can do. I can do that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, you graduate. Yes. Did, was there much of a working life as an, an actor in Australia? Because I know that you went off to London. Was that pretty soon after? Yeah. Uh, so to answer your first question, no, there wasn't much of a working life. I had got a very rude shock. I was a, a, a big fish in a small pond for the, you know, the better part of 20 years, really, and got to Melbourne and started getting the rejections that I had been avoiding and didn't like it. <laughs> Not one bit. Was it, um, Did you obtain an agent yes, fairly I got, easily? Yeah, I got an agent straight out of university um, and started auditioning around. I'm not, you know, I'm not a dancer, so I, I'm a great double Who is? threat. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's you know they, they bang on about these triple threats, but you know I think it's quite nice if you can do if you can be just a single threat quite <laughs> just quite competently. On one thing. Yeah. <laughs> so I I got out and I started auditioning and would you know always get called back with this with the same group of of girls. Shout out to Kate Houlihan every single time. She and I would be in the same room. But I would also get called back with groups of older women. So hilariously, I was auditioning for The Witches of Eastwick and I got called back and I was called back next to Jude Roberts, who danced in the Tivoli, who'd been my teacher. Oh, wow. Um, And it was, it's just, I have looked 35 since I have been 17. And so it was kind of, I just wasn't getting cast. I didn't fit and I didn't like not being able to find my footing. My friends were starting to get cast and I got really jealous and really insecure about it all. So I left the country, <laughs> basically, um, and went traveling. And then- What, what, can I, what does that jealousy do to you? I mean, that's not a- I don't do it anymore. A helpful emotion. No, you don't no. do it anymore. But, but as a young competitive yeah. performer, it certainly uh, can be an evil demon that rises at head. Sure, and I see it now in the young people that I've worked with through ATYP and other things that I've done, and I see it flare up in them as well. It's just insecurity when you're young. Well, the closest thing I, I Gore Vidal has a fabulous quote about um, when I see a friend succeed, a little piece of me dies. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. Thought, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I could relate to that once upon a time. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Especially in your twenties, it was really. And when you still, because I had studied so young, I was always in such a hurry. It's a big theme. I've always been in such a hurry to achieve and get things done that. Um, I didn't have the emotional toolkit to play the roles that I looked like or to do what was being asked of me because I was just, I can see why those schools don't take people when they're 17. It's because you just don't have the emotional vocabulary to be able to do it. And I certainly didn't have the resilience that you need. And some people are born with that, but I certainly didn't have it in my early 20s. Did you build that resilience eventually? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, that comes with maturity and experience, I suppose. Yeah. Um, but it's hard. I, I guess that that experience has given you great empathy now when you sit on audition panels or um, support, encourage young yeah. young performers. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, I can look them in the eye and say, I've been there and I know how this feels, good or bad. So why did you go to London? That was just the chance to have the big adventure? And- yeah. My, I have a British passport. I'm a dual citizen, yeah. um, thanks to my dad. And I, that had always been the plan. Because, well, I couldn't get to America as easily. And if I'm going to be Bernadette Peters, then I'm going to have to go That's to the right. West End That's or a, Broadway. That's a step closer. I've got to get there, right? So I went I went to London. Uh, I, I got an agent in London and was auditioning around. And I went to this random audition for Disney Cruise Line. And I got a gig being a mouseketeer on a Disney cruise ship. And I decided to take it because it was really cold in London. I didn't like it. So I got on a plane and I... 
uh, was a mouseketeer for a few years for Disney Cruise Because you had quite a relationship with the mouse, didn't you? I have spent a long time with Mickey, yes. So that was your first gig when you arrived in London? Yeah, I think yeah, so. Yeah. My, the, the timeline's muddied now. Muddied now, yeah, yeah. Let's with, say yes, it with was. With age. <laughs> um, but, uh, it, but that provided you, you know, working on cruise ships, a unique opportunity of seeing the world. It was amazing, especially with, with Disney. So when you get hired to Disney, you go to Disney school, which is called Traditions, and you spend five days at the theme parks in Florida learning the entire history of the organization, how the Disney business works, which kind of fired up the first sort of interest in me and what I've ended up actually building a career in because they talked about the brand and how integral it is and all this whole thing about preserving the magic which is a very very important thing for them you have to learn the whole history of all the different characters to help preserve the magic there's all these different rules there's this guidelines okay, so scripted answers being part that of you, a cult or a religion a little bit, little bit. Yeah. I remember when they first told me about going to traditions to traditions they said to me you go in there, they'll sprinkle you with pixie dust and you'll never be the same again. And I was kind of like, you're right. And it was true. I came out and I was like, I believe in my dreams. Anything can happen if you want it to. <laughs> it was amazing. Uh, and they hired us. They all, they cast. They don't just hire, they cast. So the people that they recruit are all of a similar kind of mindset. They're very careful because they know you're about to go and spend six months on a steel tank in the ocean together. So you need to be able to to get along um, and again made firm friends had a ridiculous time saw the world got to go to places that I would never have got to go to you know in my early 20s and 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 did a lot of traveling in that time I also though didn't take care of myself and so I did some damage to my voice in that right, time right. Uh, I was just being young and stupid and was staying out too late and getting up early and not sleeping properly and partying too much mm, and doing all those changed. things oh, how dare how dare you? How dare you? <laughs> but but that, that's a, a folly of youth, isn't it, really? I mean, you, totally. you, you have to do all that stuff to yeah. realise. But I did some serious damage and then I came back to London and was auditioning around and would again get down to the last two for, what, for Cats or uh, Les Mis and all those things. And every time the musical director started saying to me, You've got vocal issues. Is there a problem with your voice? I don't mm. think that you can sing eight shows a week. Um, and, and that was kind of the point when everything turned. Was that nodules and things? It wasn't actually nodules. I no. think I had just trashed it. Like it was kind of, it was, it was just, tired, it's fine fatigued. now. 20 yeah. years later, I just needed a 20 year rest. Yeah. And now it's fine. <laughs> or 15 year rest. Um, now it's fine. It sounds way better than it ever had. But it, uh, yeah, I just, it, I had done something to it. I sounded like Macy Gray. And it just is oh, no wow. matter how mm. I was trying to cover it. The, you know, an MD can hear it and they know that you can't go and do a tour of Lamy's or Cats in that state. So I just wasn't, I wasn't healthy. I hadn't looked after myself. I wasn't healthy enough to do it. Uh, I, I'd never realised how powerful that Disney magic, that fairy dust was. <laughs> um, I have happened to, I've gone to Disneyland a couple of times and the, the fans who were there, who have obviously been there, <sighs> not twice like me, mm-hmm. but, you know, 100, 200 times yeah. and they have the hat, they have the shirt. The they thing have with the, the pins, the lanyards the, with the pins. All of that sort of thing. It's, bizarre it's a whole it's a very american thing they yeah. would come on board the on, on the ship so uh, this is a specific disney cruise line yeah so they have a cruise line a disney experience. it's consistently awarded the top cruise line in the world right. um it, they're beautiful it's not like being in a theme park they're beautifully art deco designed gorgeous ships there's a whole floor just for kids so kind of the 900 children that are on board this cruise ship go up to that level and the parents can kind of chill out a bit uh 
But yeah, you have these people who come and ask you, they quiz you and they'll say, you know, what year was Steamboat Willie? You know, where is where is Mickey and how can he be here and at the parks at the same time, huh? And then you have all these, they give you scripted answers so that everybody is saying the same thing and have the same answer, you know, and that's that Mickey travels by magic. That's how he gets everywhere, you know. But people who were cast, well, everyone's called a cast member at Disney, even, you know, bartenders, waiters, cleaners are all called cast members. But you are, if you are a performer... You are, I mean, I've signed so many NDAs with them. I don't know when they expire, but basically you can't say that I play Cinderella. You have to say I'm a friend of Cinderella. And Mm. if like, there's all this code language. And if you mess with that, you get fired in an instant. They are ruthless. Well, it it is a a class act in in, uh, teaching us how to protect a brand. Yeah. And at the time, they were hiring some of the most incredible, like Jennifer Hudson was on in, in the cast on the cruise ship singing, you know, the Circle of Life and the hits of Disney. And they were... It was before she did the voice and became a megastar. But they were hiring top-notch talent. It was incredible. Were you doing suit work or you were just playing the the Disney princess? No, I didn't get in a suit. No. I was fully a Mouseketeer. So I was Amy the Mouseketeer. I had a red, white and blue t-shirt and pigtails and we would host the shows and I would rap the Mickey Mouse Club March and call Disney-themed bingo and do all of that kind of stuff. Uh, and then we would do, it was the time that Pirates of the Caribbean had come out and was like the first movie and it was really big. And so we had a great big Pirates of the Caribbean show and fireworks off the back of the ship. And when I, um, when my voice started going, which it did a few contracts in, um, I started doing kind of show development with them. So you sign away all your IP, but to work in a world where they just have all the money in the world, you know, like I look at the, the young artists that I work with here in Sydney who are, you know, putting shows on at the old fits with two pipe cleaners and a packet of blue tag to learn how to develop a show. I was doing that with a Disney sized budget going, well, wouldn't it be great if Mickey could fly in and land on the thing and there's fireworks. And then, you know, six months later, there was that show and $250,000 worth of fireworks, <laughs> like just outrageous stuff. That must be a buzz because as a, as a child who had that huge imagination and I'm sure you would have loved to have directed or mm. created yourself, but now having an opportunity like that with big budgets yeah. must have been fantastic. It was outrageous. There were so many times. There's been a recurring theme in my life where I have kind of had to step back and go, I'm just a kid from Ballarat. What am I even doing here? And that was the first time we did that show, the Pirates show with the fireworks off the back and Mickey flew in and I remember that that idea of Mickey flying between the smokestacks had been my idea. Unbelievable feeling. Changes you. Did you enjoy life as an actor? Was that was it fulfilling you? I, to this day, still love performing. I still love to sing. There is a feeling that nothing can compare to it. Um, but I did not like the life of, the reality of a life as an actor was not for me, which is why I left it. Because I just, I don't like not knowing where my next paycheck is coming from. I don't like, I, I, you know, I just, I just all got to, it's hard. And I remember my first day at, at drama school and the head of our school, Peter said, um, you know, if there's anything else in this world that you love, leave now and go and do it. And it, he was completely right. Um, yeah, I love, I love actors. I love to perform. I love all of that. But I don't like, I don't love it enough to, to go what a lot of artists go through. In London, uh, I guess post Disney, uh, unfortunately there were huge bushfires in Victoria, mm. and you banded together with a, a group of fellow Australians and uh, dare I say led the charge, perhaps. Um, whose idea was it to initiate the bushfire concert in London, um, which people still talk about? Yeah, they do. That was a really amazing time. So I had by then already started to work for a company called AKA, uh, for whom what, I work for now. What does that stand for? 
uh, Adam Kenwright Associates. Right. Okay. Um, although he doesn't have anything to do with it anymore, but at the time it did. So I had just started working there, which was my first move into building a career in another side of the arts. And a good friend of mine, an amazing producer in London, who's Australian called Patrick Gracie, got in touch with me and he said, oh, there's these bushfires happening and there's this bunch of actors and they want to, you know, put on a cabaret and raise some money and, and shake a tin and they need a producer and I wondered if you'd be interested in doing it. So what year was that? That was early... 2009? 2009, yeah. yeah. So before that, I had, when I landed in London, I had produced a few concerts and things, like just little... Um, George Stitt, who's a composer, I was putting composers in concert doing their own music as a way of trying to shift my career and get a job because no one would give me a job. I couldn't get a job for months in London. I was working at the hair salon in Harrods to pay the rent, <laughs> answering the phones, not cutting people's hair, thankfully. Good, thankfully. Yeah, good. <laughs> uh, and so yeah, I had got this job at AKA and, and Patrick called me and so I said, oh, that sounds good. I'm happy to put on, you know, shake a tin and do a little cabaret. Uh, and I and so they put me in touch with this group of, of Australians and um, they said, we'll meet for breakfast because that was the only time that I could meet. And I walked in and there was... Um, Tamsin Carroll, Nick Hardcastle, uh, Daniel Fletcher, um, Noni McCallum. Um, I think it might have just been the four of them. City, I can't quite remember who else was there, but it was definitely those four were there. And they said, we want to put on a concert. Um, and I said, oh, great. So where are we, what, you know, what little, what little room are we going to do it in? And they said, we've secured the theatre that Priscilla's in um, and we're going to do it on stage, of, on the Priscilla stage. <laughs> and I kind of went, oh, oh all, all right. It's a little bit more than kicking a leg and shaking a tin. Um, okay. And then I said to them, okay, well, have you, are you on sale? When is it on? And they said, well, it's on in, it's on in two weeks. Um, and no, we're not on sale. And that's all, all we have is the theatre and that's all we know. And so I kind of felt this sort of thing drop into the pit of my stomach. And I went, okay, well, let's do it. And so, yeah, I kind of rallied them all. So it wasn't my idea, right. um, but I, I rallied it all. And that's, I got, um, met Simon Burke and Simon Burke was in town and he hosted it for us and it started to get this momentum. And all of a sudden, all of the shows uh, in the West End had Australian performers in it and they all wanted to come and help. <laughs> now, quite problematically, Rolf Harris was there and he performed, he closed the first act. Um, and it just started to sell and sell. And because I was working in an advertising agency, I could pull favors from friends who worked at different newspapers. So we got lots of free advertising and it came to the day of it. And we really, you know, Dan Fletcher was like running the show on a laptop. I asked a favor from a friend to get a sound desk because we couldn't use mess up the Priscilla pre-cued sound desk. Um, and it came to the day of the, of the concert and there was lines around the block. To, to buy a ticket, which was unbelievable. I remember... Lines of Australians or... Everybody. Right. No, it didn't just matter. Was... Just anyone. So who was on the bill? Who... Oh, gosh. Rolf Harris. <laughs> Michael Falzon sang, cause he, and he had just finished doing We Will Rock You. Um, Michael's now wife, Jane Cho, was playing in a, in a like an electric violin trio group. The cast of Dirty Dancing performed. The cast of Priscilla performed. Um, oh yeah, uh, Damien Scarcella and, uh, and, a, and a group of guys sang, uh, Nick performed, Simon Burke obviously hosted it and he sang, um, I, can't, I can't remember who else sang, oh she played, oh Jodie, Jodie gorgeous West End performer, she won one of those television shows to find the Nancy and Oliver, All right. she performed, she was great, Tamsin no doubt, Tamsin obviously yeah. yes performed, everybody who was at that original meeting great. performed. Um, yeah, it was amazing. And I remember the show about to start and walking down the center aisle right to the front and turning around as looking up and seeing this full theater and knowing that we had created this 
And we ended up raising, I think it was 30,000 pounds. I think that's where we got to by the end. I can't remember. Um, For the Red Cross. And it went to the fires and to the floods. And it kind of, that was, again, a key a key moment for me in terms of seeing what I was capable of in filling a theatre and bringing an audience to something, making friendships that would last the rest of my life. Um, I met the Queen because of that concert. I was invited to the palace and met the Queen, which was outrageous. So how do you prepare for meeting the Queen? (laughs) So I don't know how long this episode should be, but... Did you have to buy a hat? No, I didn't. So when I I got an envelope, so off the back of the concert, I was nominated for an award, which is the most specific award ever, called the Australian Businesswoman of the Year in the UK which is like saying the best person in that house on that block. (laughs) But I was nominated for that and I didn't win because rightly so some incredible women who were making great leaps in the medical research of Parkinson's disease actually won. I just put on a concert. How extraordinary being in the same field or considered to be as worthy. It was amazing. Well, that event really uh, hit a zeitgeist in terms of the Australian community in London, which is obviously very strong and there's lots of kind of corporate Australian chamber of business groups and things. And so because of that, I kind of got into that world. Um, and so then it was the year that uh, the Queen was coming to Australia for her Jubilee visit and she was having like a pre-Australian reception at the palace, I don't know, to practice speaking to the, <laughs> to the convicts, I'm not sure. Um, you do. <laughs> and so I was at work and this thing had landed on my desk and it was this beautiful gilt-edged card that was saying, you know, Ms. Amy Maiden is invited, you know, by the Queen and, and Prince Philip. And I thought it was a joke. I thought it was a piece of marketing material. And the guy who sat across from me, who was very posh in English, saw it. And he was like, that's the real deal. That's And he was very upset that I would be invited to the palace and not him. And so I kind of looked at the date. I remember I took a picture of it and I posted it on Facebook. It's like, isn't this amazing? And then I went on holidays for a few weeks and I went away and I was in America with some friends. And I came back and I was horribly jet lagged. Um, and I was going to work and looking very jet lagged and not so great. And my brother texted me and said, have fun at the Palace And I said, no, no, it's tomorrow. I'm on the train. And he said, no, no, it's today. I said, Katie, I said, you don't know it's tomorrow. And he said, no, look at the invite that you've posted on Facebook. It's today. And so I had nothing to wear. I hadn't planned anything. I had to race out on my lunch. I grabbed a dress from from some shop, didn't even try it on, threw it on. Um, oh no, got to the end of the workday, threw it on, looked in the mirror and realised that it was way too much cleavage for the palace. It was not appropriate for the queen. And thankfully I had a kind of a backup dress that was that I was using for opening nights that would hang on my on a hat stand behind my desk. So I put that on. I had to stop at Boots, get some stockings, jumped into a cab, was putting my stockings on in the back of the cab, gave them the card and said, take me to the palace. And they they drive you through. It was The, the card had said, no hats, no gloves required. So I knew that I'd be okay. You're fine. Right? They t- and they, t- they took you through the gates and, you know, under the little... Um, I'm, I'm making gestures. That's really helpful for a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Under the awning. Can you call it the royal awning? <laughs> and you go up this huge staircase and there was a massive... The the, the video where the, uh, from the Olympics where the Queen was with Daniel Craig for the oh, British yeah, Olympics, yeah, yeah. it was in that hall. Right. Um, and to the left was all the very, very famous people. So there was, you know, Elle McPherson and Kylie Minogue and Hugh Jackman and they were all in there. So they're just meeting her or they're getting gongs as well? No, it was just a reception. Just a so reception, they had right, had a right. private reception for very famous people and then I was in another room for the not very famous people Um, and now he's going to get upset because I'm going to say this but Simon Burke was there (laughs) (laughs) sorry Simon and so Simon and I I found Simon who's the only person that I knew there and we noticed that some people had um, dots on their name tags and others didn't and we didn't so we thought okay we're not going to meet 
we're not going to meet her. Um, and then we saw a line forming, so we just stood in the line and we went around the corner and you, you had a card with your name on it and you had to pass it to some guy at the door, so I passed him the card. And he announced to me, and he was like, it was Amy Madden. And there she was. Very short. What, what were the dots about? I have no idea. Right. I, to this day, I don't know. Right. Maybe they had a prior reception I'm not sure so do you get much of an exchange with it well I was so shocked to see her (laughs) because I didn't know that I was actually in line to meet her Uh, and so I I did a terrible curtsy and I think I said it's a pleasure to meet you your highness and she said how do you do and then you get moved down to Prince Philip who was quite quite mad already by that point (laughs) and I curtsied and said the same thing and he looked at me and he said another one and then just walked off oh wow (laughs) There you go. So yes, a very long-winded version of telling you that story. That concert was quite a moment in my life and led to all sorts of things. Extraordinary. Um, what sorts of things? So I, obviously you're on the radar around London then as somebody who yeah. is able to make things work. Yeah, so I had created this series of concerts. I had got the job at AKA and all of this had really happened... Um, I must admit, because I had started dating a producer and I was watching him work. He ran a theatre company. I was watching him work and I was like, I can do that. I could totally do that. And so that's I had just made a decision. I, I dropped my agent. I said, I'm not going to do this anymore and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this other thing. And to work at AKA, so they do all the advertising and marketing and, and sales strategies for all like a whole bunch of West End shows and Broadway shows. But the way that they work which blew my mind again, was that you're at the table with some of the greatest producers of all time in Sorry, the world. Cameron McIntosh. Yeah, Cameron McIntosh. Bill Kenworthy. Yeah, Bill Kenwright. Yeah, all Ken of them. Kenwright. Yeah, all of them. Um, you know, Disney, DreamWorks, these mega theatre producers. And I was still, you know, about 29 at this point and would sit at the table and they would talk about casting, why they were casting certain people, what the ticket price should be, when the tickets should go on sale, how many tickets, you know, should be available at this price band how much money we're spending on advertising. And, and Adam Kenwright, who created the agency and started it, had been a producer oh, as well. son of Bill? Uh, nephew. Or in a relation? Nephew, yeah. right. Um, and I think nephew. Uh, and he had been a producer and he had started the agency out of frustration of, of the agencies not caring that if they spend a, do- a, a pound advertising, you need to sell some tickets. And so it was very, very accountable in what we did, that if you booked advertising, you had to be able to show what it did to sell tickets. Um, if you presented a strategy, you, you were accountable for that. And I, it was an, a whole second education, but really the, the first kind of three years there for me was just a whole other education in listening to all of these incredible producers in the, in the business of putting on shows. Um, and I and I worked my way around and up that agency, um, and loved it. And again, was working with outrageous people. Worked with again, I worked with the old Vic when Kevin Spacey was there. Got to work with um, Jeff Goldblum on different plays, on Neil Simon plays, which I had loved since I was a kid, yeah. obviously. Um, and we just you know at did, these ridiculous parties. Did you get starstruck? <laughs> um, I did with Jeff with Jeff Goldblum. He was he, but he's also the one person. That was the loveliest of everybody, of all the famous people. That oh, you that's meet. nice to hear. Yeah. Did he, you ever meet anybody who disappointed you that you might have held on a pedestal and then they yes. turned out to be a real shit? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, quite a few. Great. Quite a few. I don't know if I could talk about them. On well, the well, no, that's fine. I'm not expecting you to, but um, that must be. It's, it's horrible for anybody who. So they, they say, you know, don't meet your heroes because. Yeah, you could I had be one who was quite a bully and quite a bully directly to me. And it was really. It was quite heartbreaking, to be honest, that whole experience of working with him. Um, um, but that happens that, you know, this it's, it, I think in any industry you can meet hugely successful, hugely famous people who are 
bullies or turds <laughs> you know <laughs> that don't meet your expectations um but you know to work with companies like the royal court the national theater of great britain the donmar the you're Young getting Hope, around Elvik, it was unbelievable it was you know i had dreamed of being bernadette peters but actually this was exceeding that dream more than i had ever imagined it was a really incredible i worked my ass off i was working all hours six days a week more than they asked me for because I really wanted to succeed and so I was putting in the hours and that's when I talk to young performers or people with young ambitions now who kind of they want to jump ahead which is what I wanted to do at that same time but you've got to do your solid your 10,000 hours you've got to do those years of working really hard you got to look after yourself at the same time but it was incredible it, I worked really hard and it paid off I learned a lot and move forward do you harbor any desires to become a producer in your own right Producing is really hard. There's a lot of people who call themselves producers that aren't. There are a lot of people who want to be a producer. Um, I, the closest I came to it was when I was working at the Australian Theatre for Young People and was the general manager there. Um, I don't think so. To be honest, if you, today that might change in five years' time or ten years' time. I don't know. But sitting here today, no, I don't. I did for a long time. I was like, I'm going to become, if I'm not going to be Bernard Peters and I'm going to be a producer. But re, over the past five three to five years, I think I've sort of just let all of that go and go, actually, I just really want to make great work. Are you a gambler? Do you like taking risks? Because I imagine that would be a quality that a producer needs to have. Yeah, I mean, I've never bought a lottery ticket, so I guess right. I'm not. I hate casinos, okay. so I'm not a gambler. Um, so your focus is creating creating work? Yeah. Without, obviously, it's nice if you can get the, 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 the financial gain from, <laughs> from an experience, but, but your uh, priority is to... I guess my real... My, I don't, my real passion, my real, I, I love artists who make work and I, I, I think that takes huge courage. So to support them in any way I can, I will always do. Um, I love audiences. So, you know, you flash back to that boy in primary school who told me that he didn't like to see theatre. I guess now I've spent a lifetime building a career convincing people to go and see theatre. So I talk a lot about having a deep passion for audiences, and especially in the environment that we're in now, where you can pick, you listen to whatever podcast you want on demand, get whatever you want on demand, the task of getting people up and off the couch and into a theatre for a live experience, to have the experience that I have, that I love, that's actually the priority. So why is theatre so ex- so important to a community? Oh, that's a... I think it's about connection. You know, Brene Brown says that it's hard to hate somebody up close. And I think in a live environment, you connect with people and you hit empathy in a different way that you do when you view it through a screen. And now when our lives are so dominated by screens, human interaction is absolutely paramount. I get that. (laughs) That's essential. Yeah. Uh, We talked a little about your podcast at the start there. Um, just, Just tapping into themes there again. Have we still got a, a way to go in securing pivotal roles for women in our state theatre companies in Australia? What's your opinion on that? Because there are a lot of men leading the state yeah. theatre companies in every state. Yeah. Um, for those of you listening at home, I'm just climbing up onto my soapbox. All right, good. Now? No, I, that's, that's, uh, why I, that's why I fired the question. <laughs> eh? Yes, there is a long way to go. But I think it's more than just... So right now there's one female artistic director of the major theatre companies in Australia. 
that That's would be a Black Swan. At Black Swan, Claire Watson at Black Swan. And in the past, we've had Robin Evan. Absolutely. At QTC and STC. Kate Blanchett, yes. Yep. Yes, but that's not been the dominant thing. No, no. You've had, you know, there's three or four, Marion Potts at uh, Malthouse Theatre. You know, yes, there have been women who have held those roles, but not very And Lily Lee Lewis is a griffin. Yeah, and she does mm. amazing work. Mm. But there's not many of them. It's not equal. Um, but for me, it's a much more systemic thing. So the first, the ultimate people who hold the power is the board in that in that environment where it's a non-profit so what's the makeup of the board who are the chairs of the board and then who is the artistic director and who is the executive director and what is that pairing but what we actually also need to do is a much more systemic a systemic thing of creating an environment where women can get to those positions of power and work effectively in them especially when they're having children so I know plenty of women who could do those jobs want those jobs but actually in the reality of their lives can't move state can't zip around can't do the things that other people can do because they have a family and they have to you know look after that family and so i think it's a it's a much broader question of of not just yes we need more women in positions of power across the board across sectors but actually what we need is a system that allows women in a more effective way to get into those positions and stay in them without having to compromise everything else where do we find those women? Are they playwrights, directors, oh God, actors? Look around, they're everywhere. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's so you know, Paige Rattray yep. at the Sydney Theatre Company, um, Polly Rowe at the Sydney Theatre Company, Sarah Goods at Melbourne Theatre Company, Lee Lewis at Griffin Theatre Company. They are everywhere. There and are there's women. certainly no doubt that they, those women have certainly applied for those those key positions. Sure, yeah. sure. And, you know, who knows? Did they get them? Did they not? Did they turn them down because they didn't want to move? I don't, I don't know. That's not my business. Um, are they waiting because they have a specific city that they want to live in? Those kind of things. It, yes, there are plenty of women. And now there is more opportunity and more development opportunities. Um, but I think there is something systemic in it at the moment that also has to shift to not every woman wants to have children. I don't have any children, um, but there are women who do, and and it's some of them. They are the sole carer of those kids, or they're sharing it with their partner. But it's easier for a man to work within the current framework than it is for a woman, and then it's harder again for any kind of person of color. So I think there needs to be some systemic shifts, which is going to be generational. Um, but it's a conversation that we have to keep having, even though we get sick of it, even though we feel tired. I know I get tired and I get sick of it. Um, but it has to keep going for the system to change, to enable a diversification of voices. I talk a lot, you know, I have a lot of clients who talk to me about wanting to have diverse audiences all of a sudden. Everyone wants a diverse audience. We want new audiences because the current system of ticket buyers is becoming outdated. But you can't have a diverse audience unless the company reflects that audience. You're just not gonna be telling stories that they're interested in. You know, Belvoir did a fantastic show last year, Single Asian Female by Michelle Law, and I went and saw it, and the audience was totally different to the regular Belvoir audience, and I was so excited, because here's were groups of young women and young Asian women in a place that they had never felt was for them before. And so, you know, if you wanna achieve, I want our audiences to look like our streets and the people on our streets. And to achieve that, we need our boards and our executives and our teams to do the same. I'm not sure if this is statistics, but uh, don't women make up the large majority of audience members for- Ticket for buyers, yeah, theater? women yeah. buy the tickets. Yeah. Always, majority of women, it's always women who are buying the tickets because they're the ones 
organising the social life and making the decisions that this isn't like we'll get the sitter, this isn't like we'll go and do that. Absolutely. So it makes sense for women to be telling the stories. Well, that's across the board. Yeah. You know, you look at screen and, te- you know, television's having this beautiful renaissance now. Producers like Bruna Papandrea are making incredible work that features women. Reese Witherspoon, you know, Big Little Lies, all those kind of shows that have women at the forefront. Going, The ratings are going through the roof. So, you know, when I, th- when I have conversations like this, I always talk about what are the levers of power that you can pull to create change and the big one is money the big one is money so if there's a film that is got you know a, a cast of diverse women or women on it go and see it on the opening weekend if there's a show that you know if you really want to create change you've got to do it with money i think in terms of what you're choosing to buy tickets to if you're in a in a place, a place of privilege that you can afford to buy tickets to all the shows because they're not cheap no um then think about what you're buying tickets to because that's what people listen to and think about buying a ticket for someone else who can't afford it or who hasn't been before and show them that it's a place for them too. What's the most challenging thing of putting bums on seats? Um, it's, it depends on the context. I think at the moment, I mean, I, you know, I talk to a lot of people at the moment and they feel like, especially in Sydney, tickets aren't selling. Well, not selling like they used to. And, but the world is not like it used to be either and so you know our focus the work that I'm doing at the moment we talk about how do we get people to go places and that's really it it's because right now you know um, I did some work with the Sydney Festival and their audience they over index which means that they're more likely to want to stay at home because they can stay at home especially in Sydney where there's lockout laws and construction everywhere but you can hit a button and watch whatever you want you can hit a button and get food delivered to your door you don't have to. Do, you can hit a button and get someone to do you wash up the dishes for you. You don't have to go anywhere mm. and still experience premium, premium storytelling. Mm. So for me now, it's it's really a, a a key focus on convincing people that being in a room of other people and hearing a story that might not be like your own is the best possible thing. And I truly believe that it is. You still find an opportunity to perform occasionally. I'm talking yeah. about a group called the Mabels. <laughs> yes. Uh, we your, your front singer. Um, how did that little group uh, form? Uh, that's that's my... I, it's a real joy coming back to singing after all these years. I suppose it's essential too. For I mean, you're in such a creative um, role in your in your job, but, <clears throat> but we all need that little... We need to scratch that performance itch occasionally, don't we, to sort of yeah. feed the soul and well, nourish. There's no feeling like making music with people. There's nothing that can compare to it for me. Nothing. Um, it came out of... Uh, so I got very scared of singing for a very long time. When I started my kind of this part of my career, I was really clearly told, don't tell people that you were ever a performer and don't tell people that you were a singer because they will not take you seriously. Do not tell them that. And so I really kind of shut it all down. And there's people who I have been friends of mine for years who never knew for kind of good five, ten years that I ever performed because I just didn't talk about it. And I just said, no, that's not something I do anymore because I had been convinced that telling people that would, would make me seem frivolous or silly or not an expert or any of those things. And, of course, it's, of course you can be frivolous and silly. And I'm not the expert on anything, so none of us are. Um, so I kind of rediscovered it when I moved back to Sydney through just three friends. Anyway, ATYP was having a fundraiser and we were doing a um, raising money for the for the company because that's all you do when you run a theatre company is raise money for it. And uh, we were doing a trivia night and I said, let's make it like Rock Wiz and it was 80s themed. So I, I called a friend of mine who's a, gu- a guitarist and said, I want to put together an 80s cover band. 
and he and I can't pay them I need them to do it for charity and so he said oh, I've got a couple of friends who might do that and I met these two other guys and they're all kind of in their 50s and 60s and uh, we called ourselves parental as anything and we did this very silly one kind of off trivia night with with a phenomenal backup singers as well who are my friends uh, so there's kind of this eight-piece band that we put together and the three guys in the band and i started chatting afterwards and they said that they, they said look we've had such a fun time and we and we love performing with you and we love making music with you and um and we love how you sing and we should keep doing this and i said look i would love to but i don't want to sing 80s cover songs it's not what i'm interested in um and so i put together a list of songs that maybe we could cover and they all really liked it and it kind of went from there excellent yeah you're about to commence a new role. Yes. Which takes you from Sydney down to Melbourne. Yes. Do you have lots of warm clothes? Yes, I've been shopping. It's oh, very good, shopping. very good. Um, so what, what will you be doing down there? You're, so, you're returning to AKA, I believe. Yeah, so yeah. It's, I'm calling it my new old job. Um, so, yeah, I'm really excited to be returning to work at AKA again because it means I can work with a breadth of clients. So I left AKA for five years. I ran the Australian Theatre for Young People, which is an incredible time. I worked with the Sydney Festival and AKA called me and, and, and convinced me that perhaps I might want to come back. And I did some really deep thinking about it. And I really have been thinking a lot lately about um, legacy and power and influence and how that can be best used. And I came to... To the decision, to the realization that by working with a suite of clients, I can do really great work across a broader portfolio of things in Australia. And I'm very passionate about the Australian industry. I know a lot of theatre companies and artists and producers across, you know, commercial and subsidised who need help. And so it won't, you know, there's me, there's a team of people. And so for me, it was about going, actually, here's an opportunity to create something that can help the whole sector, that can support people, that can sit outside of the of the day-to-day of just getting through running an arts company or an organisation um, and do something to build Australian audiences. And so that's why I decided to go and do it. So this is a producing role? or no. so, it's, it's marketing? Again, it's the same agency that I was at in London yeah, in yeah. Australia. So it's marketing, advertising ticket sales all of those kind of strategies content digital now is all part of it um, which just makes me like when I li- when I worked it's in London it's a brave new world isn't it well when I worked in London mm. I made the first Facebook page that AKA ever had for a show which was for Legally Blonde the musical and it's, <laughs> that is very rudimentary compared to the kind of stuff that we do now um, so yeah I'm really again for me it's all about convincing people to ex- experience the stuff that I got to experience and that I do get to experience. And I think I have now got a, a, a really passionate love of Australian work and Australian stories and Australian writers and the things that we have to tell here that can't be told anywhere else. That's my real passion. Um, but if I can get an audience member in through a big commercial show, which is a title that they recognise that's a safe investment for them, and then they might buy a ticket to an unknown new show by a female writer that they've never thought about going to, then that's what better legacy could you possibly have? It's so exciting when career paths take twists and turns and turn out probably how you least <laughs> expect them. Yeah. I mean, to, to reflect now and see that little girl playing Jessie in Annie Get Your Gun, <laughs> who wanted to be Bernadette Peters, but whose <laughs> career has led her in such an exciting sort of twists and turns is fantastic. Very proud of you, Amy Maiden. So um, thanks for chatting to me today. Thank you. It's always lovely to see you and um, all the very best with your your new chapter. Yes, thank you. We'll see you soon. Yes. (laughs) How was that? (laughs) Did you tell me? How was that? I thought it was fantastic. Great. 
happy. I'll have a soapbox. <laughs> Is there anything that we missed? No. No, covered it all? Yeah. Great. Amy is certainly a wonder woman, and it was a treat to hear all of those extraordinary accomplishments. Let's hope she finds some time soon to relaunch her own podcast. Amy Maiden is asking for it. Join me in the next episode of Stages, where I'll be talking all things drag along the glitter strips of Oxford Street and King's Cross with drag doyenne and superstar Polly Petrie. It promises to deliver something outrageous, fascinating and an extraordinary history. I'm Peter Ayers and you've been listening to another episode of Stages.